We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Acts. Real love is calling, listen, opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. He means it really in that sense. He's not saying you're going to have to work hard and strive in order to get to heaven. There's going to be a lot of difficulty you have to, you know, go through in order to earn your way to heaven. He doesn't mean it in that sense. What he means it in the sense of realizing that there will be difficulties along the way, difficulties in life, difficulties in faith. If you've ever had a crisis in life or you've ever had a crisis of faith, it's okay. Because some of that is to be expected. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Acts. In the world, you have to put in a lot of work and effort to get things or move up in your career. You have to earn your way into everything. Today, Pastor Gary reminds you that, thankfully, you cannot earn your way into heaven. Your salvation is not based on your own efforts or works. The reality most people are surprised by is that you will still face hardship and struggles, even after surrendering your life to Christ. In fact, you should expect to face some struggles as you walk with Jesus. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Acts, chapter 13, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. It was a husband and wife, a man and woman named Philemon and Bacchus, and they recognized Zeus and Hermes, and Zeus and Hermes, so the legend goes, took these two individuals and made them oak trees by the temple of Zeus and killed all the other people of Lystra. Okay, so that's the background because you have to understand that the people of Lystra with that mythological story in their heads are thinking we don't want to miss when Zeus and Hermes show up again because if that happens, we're going to be killed. Look at the oak trees, remember? Okay, the rest of the people were killed here. So this must be Zeus and Hermes. And they look at Barnabas and they think he's Zeus. They look at Paul, they think he's Hermes because he's the talker. So I guess Hermes was the talker, I don't know. And they're like, we got to worship these guys. And the priest of Zeus from the temple comes down with bulls. They want to sacrifice and worship these guys, and they want to deify them. Now, how many of you understand that if somebody wants to deify you, it might appeal to your ego, but not a good thing to accept? If somebody's like, you're a god. You're like a Greek god. Don't go, well, thank you. Don't do that, all right? Remember what happened to Herod Agrippa back in chapter 12 when the people thought he's shining like a god. He's coming down in his, in his royal garments and the sun hit him just right and he's shining like, you're a god and he doesn't tell him no and God kills him and worms come out of his belly. It's not a good way to go. 
So, so, you know, no doubt Paul and Barnabas are like, you know, we don't want to happen to us what happened to Herod Agrippa, so we better speak up. Guys, no, we're not gods. But it's a good thing for them to recognize this because the people are ready to deify them and to sacrifice in the worship of them. A little bit of historical uh, illustration at this point. In 1778, Captain James Cook, not James Kirk, all right, Captain James Cook discovered the Hawaiian Islands, 1778. He called them originally the Sandwich Islands. When he discovered the Hawaiian Islands, the Hawaiian people, the Polynesian people, came out and greeted Captain Cook and his crew as they disembarked from their ship. And they were so taken by his appearance and by the ship and the whole thing that they thought that Captain Cook was their god that they called Lono, L-O-N-O, Lono. And Captain Cook allowed them to think that. And you can read historically that then he began to trade with the people of Hawaii. They would trade iron, which was an unknown commodity to the people of the Hawaiian Islands at the time that James Cook discovered it. He traded iron for sex. If you look historically, horrible venereal disease swept through all of Captain Cook's crew because they took advantage of the deity that Cook accepted, and so they had free reign with the women of the Hawaiian Islands. Tremendous venereal disease swept throughout the crew of Captain Cook, but he allowed the people to think this for a time. Now, there's a little dispute when you look at the historical record between the diaries that were written among some of the crew of Captain Cook and and you, you go now to, you know, like the History Channel, they have a slightly different... Some say that Captain Cook was exposed because one of the women that he slept with, her 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 man, her husband, uh, fought Captain Cook over a woman. Others say that, that there was a fight that just occurred, but it was not over a woman. So regardless of what it was, there was a fight that ensued. And one of, one of the uh, Hawaiian local men fought with Captain Cook, and when he fought with him, he bled. Cook bled. To which the Hawaiian islander said, Lono does neither bleed nor groan. You are not a god. Because you were bleeding. And he killed him there, and they savagely, brutally killed Captain Cook. That is an historical fact. They turned on him at that point when they realized that he was not the God that they thought he was. You know, Captain Cook should have, at the beginning, realized that. And in the end, he fatally suffered for it. Low no. Yeah. Oh no is right. You're going to die for letting people think that you're a god. So that's a case that didn't turn out too well. Paul and Barnabas here are like, we're not taking any deity for ourselves. We are not gods. We are human, just like you. They're vessels that God flows through, but they are human, just like you. That's what they say to them. And so the rest of verse 15, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, I want you to notice here the language. The language of his, of his proclamation of the gospel is not going to be on the basis of Jewish law and Jewish history. He's going to talk in terms that they will understand. This is important. I'm going to point it out in a minute. But please notice, he goes, we're telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. 
In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Now, notice again, when Paul is sharing here the truth, he is using language that his hearers would understand. One of the most important effective tools of evangelism, if you go to share your faith with people, you better know your audience, so to speak. You better know who you're talking to. Because you're going to have to talk in terms that they will understand. If someone is completely unchurched, they might need a certain entry point that is different from somebody who has heard the Bible all their lives, but they've never accepted Christ as their Savior. And what Paul does here is he appeals to a pagan Greek mind, and he basically says to them, you you, you want to have a relationship with, with the one who's responsible for the rains from heaven and the one who produces crops for you to harvest? Do you understand that we're talking about the creator of the universe here? And he uses language that they would be able to understand. Oh, oh, you're talking about the one who's behind the harvest? You're talking about the one who was the creator? But And even with these words, the people still wanted to sacrifice to them and worship them like a god. It says, and then, verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. Here's here's this this group that's still coming to cause trouble, and it gets really bad here. Notice it says, and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Isn't that brave? And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now, a little reference point here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you don't need to turn, but in the margin of your Bible, you can just write 2 Corinthians chapter 12 right here. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how he experienced a near-death kind of a situation where he talks in 2 Corinthians 12 about actually being taken to heaven. And he has kind of this, he writes about kind of like an out-of-body experience and then also in that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about this thorn in his flesh that he kept praying that God would take away. And God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you, for in your weakness is my power made perfect. And it is believed that that whole reference of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is referring back here to this scene when he was stoned and left for dead. It is possible that when it speaks here about how all the disciples gathered around him, that they actually prayed for him and perhaps even brought him back from the dead. Because he was stoned and thought to be dead and his body was dragged out of the city. And during that time, it is likely that he actually, his spirit may have actually departed from his body. He may have had this experience of being taken to heaven. And then the disciples gather around his, his lifeless body and pray for him. And then he comes back to life. That is what is inferred here. And that the part in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the thorn in his flesh, most Bible scholars believe he's referring to the problem of an eye condition that he seemed to have sustained as a permanent injury from the stoning that he received here in this city. That the thorn in his flesh was this continually nagging problem with his eyes as a result of the injuries that he sustained here in this city of Lystra. So, 
That's that context. Now, he goes back into the city, very brave. It's like, you know, you tried to kill me, but he's like the ever-ready bunny, just like, you know, you knock him down, but you can't knock him out. And he keeps coming back, and he keeps being faithful. Look at his, his determination. He just does not give up. Well, the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So we're going to now go uh, east to the city of Derby, where there's a, a great Kentucky horse race that happens there every year. Sorry, that's a different Kentucky Derby. But anyway, here they are in Derby. And it says in verse 21, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. So the word is continuing to advance. And then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They're going backwards now. They're going, they're retracing their steps and they're going to go all the way back to Antioch. So they're going back to these cities, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Notice what they say here. I want you to underline this. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What exactly does that mean? Well, for you note takers, I want to point out one thing it doesn't mean and and tell you what, what he is saying here. Here's the verse. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, not in the sense of striving to get to heaven, okay? When he says here about the kingdom of God, sometimes in your Bible it it speaks about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes those phrases mean the same thing. And then there are other times where the kingdom of God does not really mean a place, it means a position of God's rule in your life. Uh, For example, in Luke 17, Jesus said, The kingdom of God will not come with your careful expectations. Neither will people say, Here it is or there it is, for the kingdom of God is within you. And so in that sense, he's speaking about the rule of the Lord in your life as you live your life for his glory. Okay, There is a real heaven. There's the kingdom of heaven. And then there's the kingdom of God when God reigns and he is Lord of your life and you surrender and submit to him and you live your life out in that sense with Jesus on the throne. So he means it really in that sense. He's not saying you're going to have to work hard and strive in order to get to heaven. There's going to be a lot of difficulty you have to you know, go through in order to earn your way to heaven. He doesn't mean it in that sense. What he means it in the sense of realizing that there will be difficulties along the way, difficulties in life, difficulties in faith. If you've ever had a crisis in life or you've ever had a crisis of faith, it's okay. Because some of that is to be expected. Some of that is to be expected. There will be difficulties and hardships in this world. Now, I put 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 12 up there, and I'll read it to you. Because in 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that that Paul writes before he is taken home to be with the Lord. So it's kind of like his dying counsel. He writes in his closing letter about the suffering that he endured with the beating in Lystra. And, and all of this that happened on his first missionary journey. Here's what he says. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Now, that's not typically one of those verses you write out on a three-by-five card and put on your refrigerator so you can see it every day. I just want to be reminded, here's an encouraging little verse. If I want to live a godly life, I'm going to be persecuted. That's not one of those verses you typically like to put somewhere where you can see it every day in your prayer closet. But nevertheless, it is the reality of living a life for Christ. Sometimes in this world, you will have trouble. Sometimes your faith will be stretched in ways that will hurt. And Paul says, I'm a living example of somebody that's had to endure a lot. But I want to share with you, before we close out this chapter, I just want to share with you Paul's perspective on suffering. Paul's perspective on suffering. Now, I'm going to offer you three points that come from the lips of Paul, okay? And I don't want this to come across like, you know, take three aspirin and call me in the morning. Here are your three points, almost like here's a prescription, and if you're suffering, just do these things and everything's going to be better. Okay, I don't, I don't ever like to simplify things into little formulas. So I offer this to you not, not because I want to present like some simplified formula, just do all this and everything will be better. I'm saying that these are the things that Paul recognized in his own sufferings helped him. Okay, so I offer them to you. And that if you're going through some difficulty or suffering or, or challenge of some kind, that you can maybe take comfort in what ministered to Paul. Okay? Three points. Here's the first one. He says to us, remember that God loves you. And I'm going to read the verses. I'm going to give you a verse for, for each of these points, and then I'm just going to briefly comment on it. But here's Romans 8, 35 to 39. This is, this is what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me tell you why this is an important point to remember. Because when you're in the middle of some suffering, some hardship or some trial, it is easy to think that God doesn't love you. Because if God loved me, then he would have spared me what I'm going through. That's sometimes the way we think. And take it from Paul's own life experiences, I want you to know, from a man who has gone through every kind of horrible suffering you could possibly imagine, none of this separates me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that we always need to remember that no matter what things look like, God still loves me. He loves me. He wishes his best for me. My pain and my suffering is no reflection of a loveless God. And we have to sometimes separate that, that we live in a world that is fallen and sinful and dreadful and difficult and painful things happen, but this is not heaven yet. And so don't lose sight of the fact that God loves you even though you're going through something very terrible. Paul says, nothing will separate me from the love of God. Here's the second thing that he says. We also need to rely on God who helps you. This is what he said in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 10. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. 
It's what we just read here, first missionary journey. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. He says, indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. What is he saying? He's saying, I can't explain the why behind everything that happened, but this much I learned that it helped me to rely more on God and less on myself. And there is a reality to our own trials and sufferings that if, if, if you'll walk through it, instead of getting angry at God and running, if, if you walk through it, you will learn a greater dependency on the Lord and less reliance on yourself. And that's a good thing. So he says, that's one of the things that I've learned through my sufferings. And then here's the third thing. He says, regard your present sufferings through an eternal lens. Through an eternal lens. And this is what he wrote in Romans 8.18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, I can tell you that if he were not a man who lived through sufferings and he just offered that as a prescription to you in the middle of your suffering and somebody walked up to you and says, you know what? Your present sufferings aren't that bad compared to the glory that will be revealed in heaven. That would be insulting. Okay, for somebody to just kind of come up to you and say, you know, just remember there's heaven. that, But this is written from a man who has experienced all kinds of suffering, even to the point where after he finishes writing 2 Timothy, his head will be separated from his shoulders by Emperor Nero. Okay, this is a guy who knows what he's talking about because he's going to die for his faith. He's going to be beheaded. And he says, I got to continually keep this perspective i got to look at my sufferings through the lens of eternity. Because even though this is hard, there's something far better that awaits me. And so as difficult as it is here, eternity is much longer and much better. And in the end, when I'm with the Lord, it's going to be okay. For now, it hurts and hurts bad. But i got to keep this eternal perspective that there is an eternal reward and my life is going to be a lot longer than what I'm given here on earth. And so I keep my eyes fixed on heaven and my hope in Jesus. That's what he says to us. So if you're going through something, take it from a man, not me. Take it from Paul, somebody who's been through everything. And remember that God loves you. Rely on God who helps you and regard your present sufferings through an eternal lens. Let's finish out this chapter real quickly, just back to the map, and then we'll finish it here. He says, verse 23, that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. Notice that, appointed, not voted. We have a very democratic way of looking at church leadership these days, but the Bible talks about appointing elders in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And after going through Poseidia, they came into Pamphylia, and then they, they preached the word in Perga, which is right down along the coast. And then it says they went to Italia, and then it says, 
From Italia, verse 26, they sailed back to Antioch, Antioch of uh, Syria, from which they started, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. That's all for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. What are some things you've taken away from the messages here in Acts? Would you let us know? You can get in touch with us by sending an email to prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. While you're sharing what you've learned, feel free to send us a prayer request so we can know how to be praying for our listeners. That email again is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Our radio ministry is an outpouring of what's going on here at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary teaches every Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays. To learn more about who we are, go to cornerstoneconnection.cc. We're so happy that you're part of our listening audience, and we'd be delighted to meet you and hear your faith journey. Like so many of the people mentioned in Acts, there's much transformation that happens in a person's heart when they seek to follow after God. We hope that's the case for you, too. All that to say, we hope you'll continue to tune in to these messages and keep growing as you dig into the book of Acts with us. We'll be right here, same time, same place, at Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know